This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. Good morning. Hello. I'm so glad you're here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, and your last name is pronounced Bakiaki, right? You got it. I'm really glad because I love saying it like that. So I was I was really worried that it would not be pronounced Bakiaki and that I would not I would have to stop saying it. Um, so yes, we've got Erica Bakiaki with us, um, who lives on the East Coast. So she's joining us via Zoom, and we're here to talk about women's rights and the history of feminism what's been good about the feminist movement, what maybe needs to be rethought and reimagined and how we can best do that. So these are some of my personal favorite things to think and talk about. So I'm very excited to have Erica today. So she's recently written this amazing book. I'm going to hold it up called The Rights of Woman, um, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. So this has just recently come out with the University of Notre Dame Press. And it's fantastic. I, I can't recommend it enough. It's the best history of the women's movement I've ever read and her analysis about what's been good and what's been bad is just, it's fantastic. So um, I'm, I'm really excited to begin our conversation. Um, Thank you, Abigail. Yeah. And just to give our audience a sense of who you are, besides the author of this amazing book, you're a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute and you founded and direct the Wollstonecraft Project, which is named after Mary Wollstonecraft, who I'm sure we'll be talking about um, in our discussion. But I think to begin, I would love to hear a little bit more about kind of your personal story, especially in relation to feminism. Um, what's been your journey with feminism and maybe some of the highlights of that? Um, how have your views shifted and what what have been major influences? If you can just kind of sketch a uh, a history of your your own feminist history, I guess, um, to begin. <laughs> yeah, and I'll try to keep it short. Um, obviously, these things have um, have so many nuances, right? Yes. Um, so, I really sort of entered the feminist conversation um, when I arrived at Middlebury College in the mid nineteen nineties. I had had kind of a um, difficult childhood, um, though. I would say many <laughs> uh, people uh, sort of of my generation experienced much of what I did, which was um, a lot of divorce. So my mom was married and divorced three times by the time mm -hmm. I reached my 19th birthday. But what was kind of supplemental and even harder, I mean, that was already difficult and um, I think really caused a lot of acting out early on. Um, so by 13 and 14, I was kind of um, engaging in kind of the culture of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, really young age. Um, but at 16, I had a friend take his own life. Um, mm -hmm. And that sort of pushed me into um, kind of some counseling, but also into 12-step program mm -hmm. where I um, was taught basically how to pray. So I guess that mm -hmm. uh, was kind of an important precursor even to my um, getting to college and becoming a women's studies student and a leader of the Women's Center there. Um, and it's important for obvious reasons, probably to your audience, but I'll, I'll get to that soon. Um, and then when I, after I had started, um, really, you know, I think there was a lot of, um, I'd say anger, fear 
around relationships around men. Um, I had stopped acting out in all those ways because of being in, um, in the 12 step programs and really had kind of changed my life in a a lot of ways. Um, but didn't have kind of a moral or philosophical framework for any of it. Mm -hmm. So I was really looking to women's studies for that. Um, but then a second friend took his own life and he was someone who I, I was close to really close to both of them. I kind of imagined myself marrying the second one. So it was really devastating and it really sent me into kind of an emotional um, downward spiral. But it, because of that, it really got me on my knees, I'd say, a lot more. On my knees, I say, because in the 12-step programs, that's how I was taught to pray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it opened me up, the prayer. Um, and at this point, I was incredibly anti-Christian. I mean, as mm-hmm. a leader of the Women's Center, you know, um, and taking all these women's studies courses, I called myself sometimes a radical or sometimes a socialist feminist. Mm-hmm. I volunteered one summer up in Vermont for Bernie Sanders, um, who was then the congressman. Now he's a senator, obviously much more popular than he was then. And so it kind of opened me up enough to start to sort of have a critical kind of lens into some of my women's studies classes. And what I started to want to do is have kind of a, I, I saw equality and freedom for women as the right ends and was still like learning a lot um, in my classes. But I started to want to decouple that from the, the sort of um, a real strong linkage in those classes between the women's movement and the sexual revolution. Because mm. for me, it seemed like sex for men and women was not equal. In fact, it was greatly unequal. I experienced this myself. I saw it in the, you know, women, um, the ca- kind of casual sex culture that was running rampant on campus then, Um, and obviously with regard to, you know, I had become kind of pro-choice there on campus, got kind of the pro-choice arguments. Um, but that even seemed like a pretty stark kind of inequality to me. Um, and so that's where, and that is really shaped, I would say my whole worldview around or how, or my worldview at first, but then how, um, my feminist kind of the unfolding of my thought has come to be is that this inequality at the basis of kind of our sex bodies and sex itself Um, And so to me, every feminist um, kind of response is always, or theory is always um, trying to figure out what to do with this basic sexual inequality, or as I would say, sexual asymmetry. Mm -hmm. So from there, um, well, the rest is history. We can get into it more, but (laughs) I'll I'll start with that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm really interested in why you use the phrase sexual asymmetry, right? Or or even instead of sexual difference, sometimes you hear that phrase like, um, so why do you use the term asymmetry to describe the basic biological distinctions between men and women? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Because, you know, we do know, so in safe recent feminist history, say 1980s, there was a big dispute between, um, you know, those who wanted to really emphasize the sameness between men and women, mm-hmm. sort of the equality feminists, and those who really wanted to talk about difference, and they were mm-hmm. called all sorts of different things like difference feminists, care feminists. Um, and I, you know, I see uh, good things in both, but I think asymmetry is a really important way of conceiving this. I think it really comes out of evolutionary biology, just sort of asymmetries in sex. And that is the most obvious one is, uh, you know, that men and women engage in the same sexual act and sexual intercourse, but it's women who can get pregnant mm-hmm. um, and men cannot. And so Aristotle got this right a long, long time ago. He got a lot wrong. Happy <laughs> to talk about that if you want. But his basic understanding of the difference between men and women is that, you know, 
women reproduce within themselves and men reproduce outside of themselves. And that means there's a whole lot of difference because obviously caring for a child within you for nine months is very different from the capacity to basically walk away, which obviously callous men have done throughout human history. Um, So I think that's the basic asymmetry. So asymmetry just meaning inequality. There's an inequality in the consequences of sex. And it goes further than that. You know, I mean, the more research I've done over kind of the decades, um, is, you know, hormonally, um, there's a great asymmetry. And, and that is that, you know, men, because of testosterone blasting through <laughs> their bodies, um, tend to um, prefer, uh, you know, multiple sex encounters, prefer sex without commitment. Again, this is sort of biological preference. It doesn't mean it's what good men sure. prefer. Of course not. Exactly. We can get to that. Yeah. What What's required in order to um, mm-hmm. sort of manage one's biological um, uh, inclinations. But, and there's a d- d- drive to kind of have sexual intercourse, um, you know, uh, quickly, right? And so for women, estrogen um, also causes sort of, you know, libido, but also oxytocin is what accompanies mm-hmm. sex for women. And so, you know, first kind of, um, it takes them longer to enjoy sex. It requires commitment so that they can have the vulnerability that allows them to relax and enjoy sex. But also there's a, there's a kind of connection, emotional connection that exists between, um, for the woman that is less present for the man because of hormonal differences at really no fault of her own, right? She is bonded because of the bonding, the love hormone oxytocin, both in sex in pregnancy and breastfeeding, um, which enables her, which enables the man kind of to walk away and her not to. Um, and then things like STDs affect women far more um, because of just the layout of their, their, um, you know, uh, their genitalia, et cetera. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of asymmetry going on. And yet we kind of have papered all of that over um, uh, in our kind of modern understanding, modern feminist understanding. Yeah, I I really want to get into this um this connection or the relationship between the women's movement and the sexual revolution, which I think most feminists have seen as um, a good thing overall for women, that it's been liberating for women. But that sounds like that's not your perspective. Um, but maybe a way to get into that, because I also would like to to be able to kind of trace your account of the feminist movement and the women's movement. So you you begin your book by contrasting this women's suffrage march, I think in 1913, with the women's march in 2017, right? And you you hold these up as two examples of how a profound shift has happened between that first wave of feminism and then what feminism has come to be. So what is what is the nature of that profound shift and how did it come about? If you can kind of sketch your, your account of that. Yeah. So that of course is, um, you know, the burden of the whole book is to kind of show what happens, but in a few words, um, the way I kind of put it there is, well, first of all, the ideas, um, that, that, you know, the, the night, the 2017 women's March, you know, sort of rhetorically espoused, you know, justice, freedom, self-determination, equality, they mean entirely different things now. And so just those, just the terms are very different. Um, and so there's kind of this indeterminacy about the women's movement where because of modern philosophy, postmodern philosophy, things you study, things I study, um, there's this way in which there's no, you know, there's no understanding of the human person as having some end, um, which, you know, we'll get to, but the early women's rights advocates starting with Mary Wollstonecraft understood to be 
um, attaining kind of to virtue and wisdom because they were rational creatures, that's all thrown out the window so that we really determine our own ends um, and then freely choose how to get there. And so that in itself Mm -hmm. means that when a, a term like equal citizenship which is exactly what the early women's rights advocates were, were working for, gets really flipped on its head with someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who uses the term to, um, you know, really um, explain why abortion should be part of, um, a central part, a key part of women's equality, that, that in order for women to have equal citizenship, women need to have the right to, um, you know, well, take the lives of their own children. And we can get at why, you know, what that's built mm-hmm. upon, but the, it's a very different understanding. So going back, um, Mary Wollstonecraft's understanding is that freedom is just a means to a determined end. And again, that's virtue and wisdom. And where does she come up with that? Well, she understands that it's kind of the, vir- it's kind of what I say is the kind of logic of virtue. And that is, um, you know, she sees equality in our um, in men and women both having these rational souls that we're both rational creatures created by God, and so we're responsible to God for um, for kind of working out uh, developing our capacities, and that you know is also you know you hear that in sort of feminist thought today. But do we develop our capacities toward a particular end, and that mm-hmm. is virtue and wisdom. And how do we come about doing that? It's through fulfilling our duties, our very concrete duties that we have in front of us. It's not running away from our duties or think we ought to be free from our duties or think that there are, is no such thing as kind of duties, which is what you get with kind of modern philosophy. Um, so it's really all kind of flipped on its head. Um, the other really obvious thing, since I mentioned Ginsburg and her uh, views on abortion, is that the both Wollstonecraft and the earliest women's rights advocates understood that they had a natural duty to care for the child developing within them, um, that they didn't believe that they had any kind of legitimate authority to end the life of that own chi- that child. Um, and, so, and so because abortion was entirely off the table for them, because they believed they had these natural duties to their child, of course, because the child is growing within and um, and, you know, the mother is the only one who can care for that human being, um, in a, in, you know, in a, in a particular, um, special way. So they, they changed kind of, they, they had a very different way of how to deal with asymmetry, the fact that women had this child. And so they advocated voluntary motherhood, which was the right to refuse sex, even within marriage, unless the woman was ready to become, you know, to become a mother. And so, of course, all that is, again, flipped on its head with contraception and abortion. So it's a really, it's almost like two different um, mm-hmm. women's movements entirely. Um, one, I think, is an authentic women's movement. The second, um, actually, my friend Mary Harrington has sort of said that feminism ends in 1970, and that really after that, it's like biotechnological control over over bodies, mm-hmm. you know, which I, I really like that idea a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that that was my next question. Like, when does this shift? Right. So is it in 1970 or and what what prompts the shift? Yeah. And the shift. So you could say there's a hard, obvious shift in 1970 with the legalization of abortion. Mm -hmm. But there's all sorts of things that come before that. And again, that is Mm -hmm. the burden of the book. Obviously, right before you have the work of Margaret Sanger, who you know, uses the language of voluntary motherhood, but for very different purpose. You know, she wants to disconnect sex um, from reproduction in order to, well, do a couple of things. One, um, enable women not to have to um, undergo kind of these 
illegal abortions, but also to, you know, to help kind of give women the freedom from their bodies, which she saw their fertility as being kind of, I mean, it's amazing kind of the rhetoric um, she uses to describe how fertility not only imprisons, imprisons women, but also is like the cause of every ill <laughs> that befalls man, uh, humankind. So it's like wars, poverty, it's mm-hmm. all women's responsibility to really stop having so many children. And so the earlier women's rights movement would say, um, yes, women should engage in um, reproduction responsibly, shouldn't just have, you know, children that they can't, um, you know, that they can't provide for. But it's that sex and reproduction really have to be connected um, because otherwise men will, um, that 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 the kind of um, male prerogative that already existed legally where, you know, husbands could, you know, demand sex from their wives, that that would... Um, become worse um, if you disconnected the two um, because men would then have sort of this excuse to not only engage in kind of a marital rape, but also engage in, um, you know, procure prostitutes, engage in infidelity. Um, And this is, you know, by and large, what we saw after the pill came to be is that there's an an abortion in the 1960s and 70s. It's it's the cause of the sexual revolution, right? It, It enabled sex and reproduction to be split so that people could have sex outside of marriage um, which, uh, you know, led to, um, a great deal of, um, non-marital childbearing, um, you know, an uptick in, in, in abortion as well. Um, because, you know, though they use the pill, the pill is not foolproof. (laughs) Um, and so, and so obviously, you know, the abortion rate and non-marital childbearing rose at that point, which is all much more burdensome to women than men. Mm -hmm. And so exactly what the, what, early women's rights advocates and Wollstonecraft understood to be, if, if you know, Sanger saw the, the real problem in women's fertility, in women's bodies, the earliest women's rights advocates, including Wollstonecraft before them, saw it in uh, the want of male chastity, in male kind of lust, and the incapacity of, um, of you know, vicious men to, to, to have self-mastery. And for these women, it was in mastering our desires um, that we could really have kind of equality and harmonious relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was nodding a lot when you were talking about Margaret Sanger, cause I've recently in some of my own work been reading her account, you know, her, <laughs> and she does, I mean, she scapegoats women's female fertility for everything. Right. So even all the tyrannies of the world, they're not the fault of the tyrants. They're the fault of the mothers who had the tyrants. Right. So, um, she really does conceptualize liberation, for women, not from patriarchal oppression per se, but from their own capacity um, to bear children, which is, yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. But you're making, so you're making the argument that contraception has been bad for women and that overall, right? And that is, that is such a profound argument, right? Because I, I can think, and counterintuitive to, I think, a lot of feminists and maybe even to some of our listeners, um, I, I can remember in my own journey with feminism, um, really just seeing contraception as like this, like the linchpin of women's freedom, right? And, and I can remember getting really worked up about the debates of, of the contraception mandate and the Affordable Care Act and just not understanding why anyone could see this as anything but good for women. Um, and so I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit. Um, just especially for the benefit of our listeners, why you see contraception as ultimately not being good for women. Now, you've already mentioned 
the relationship between contraception and abortion initially, which I think is really important to highlight because I think often the assumption is that, oh, well, contraception actually you know, mitigates abortion rates, like contraception actually reduces abortions, um, which may be true in a sense, but one of the things you said that I think is really important is that when our culture became a contraceptive culture initially, abortion rates skyrocketed. And it's it's amazing. They go from like 500 a year to like 1 million per year in a decade after after the the pill um, is legalized in the 60s. So um, it's really, yeah, it's really incredible. But aside from even that connection, that contraception actually led to an increase in unplanned pregnancies um, and abortions. Why else do you argue that um, contraception has ultimately not been for um, women's good? Yeah, I mean, I think that's in the book, that's sort of um, the real central argument that I make is that, because it's a history, right? So mm -hmm. it's looking at the way in which, um, you know, Margaret Sanger really, well, in this particular chapter, in one chapter, um, I look at the way in which, um, you know, Sanger pushes through the pill and the population control advocates are really all, um, you know, desiring that uh, for all sorts of both nefarious, like, you know, eugenic reasons, but then also, you know, in order to give women um, kind of a freedom from kind of the the burdensome pregnancies that happened year after year after year. Um, but that it, there is a way in which with the pill comes this shift where people think that suddenly sex, you know, can be engaged in, um, uh, you know, in a way that, um, that, that is non-procreative, but because of that, there's this uptick in sexual risk-taking. And that of course mm -hmm. is what, um, you know, there's a kind of a change in behavior, um, mm -hmm. where people think that they can, um, have sex without kind of considering the possibility of getting pregnant. And so that is what increases, um, non-marital pregnancy or non-marital pregnancies, you know, because of sex outside of marriage and abortion, et cetera. Um, so that's really the story I tell, but, um, because I also then several chapters before in chapter four, four talk about voluntary motherhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I really get at the way in which, um, these, the kind of insight that, um, these women's rights advocates had about undisciplined male desire, I would say also female desire, but really for them, because of kind of the sexual double standard that existed where men could engage in mm -hmm. kind of, you know, uh, sexual outings, um, and women would really be blamed for like getting pregnant or whatever, <laughs> um, that they, that they wanted that in response to kind of the male sexual, um, or the male, the double standard, um, you know, they would have pointed really to, um, to voluntary motherhood as the way to kind of rein men in, um, because it was like, and men engaged in this movement as well. I mean, what's fascinating, um, and I'm actually writing an article, um, about this right now, because I think it's so important to understand that this movement was, it was, had universal acceptance. Now there were all sorts mm -hmm. of disparate groups, um, different, disparate opinions in the early women's rights movements, you know, should we go for suffrage? Many women thought not, many women's rights advocates thought not at first opening, you know, the professions, women educate, like all these things, temperance for sure, all sorts of disagreements, mm -hmm. right? But voluntary motherhood was something that was universally accepted across the board, mm -hmm. suffragists, moral reformers, even the free love people who, um, it's a different kind of understanding of free love than, than the 1970s. Um, but, but they all thought that really, you know, abstinence was the way to 
kind of, um, you know, during fertile periods, which they, of course, they did not understand scientifically mm-hmm. at that point. So it didn't really work in terms of a, <laughs> a, a, a good um, means of fertility regulation. But what they understood is that really, um, because women have this, um, these asymmetrical, both, you know, privileges and burdens of, ha- of, of bearing children, that men should um, kind of experience in their bodies what it means to take seriously sex. Mm. And so be asked to abstain from sex when women could have children. And I think that's kind of the key is that when you ask men to understand, to kind of take seriously this asymmetry that, you know, um, you know, sex is potentially reproductive and um, that women are the ones whose bodies bear, you know, the consequences of, of sex, that it's basically bringing men into the whole experience um, much more fully of sex so that they're not just engaging in sex either for pleasure or for emotional connection or for the potential of actually, you know, having children and, and raising children. But that's so they understand the consequences of sex deep in women's bodies that should be deep in men's bodies too. And the kind of abstinence that's required that's very hard sometimes for men requires them to really see how self-mastery, sexual self-mastery is what enables them to really, um, uh, you know, I think love their wives, um, love their sexual partners much more, much more fully. So I think it's the the affirmative case for voluntary motherhood or what we would now think of as natural family planning, natural fertility regulation. Um, that is a really beautiful way to um, see kind of the reciprocity and kind of bring kind of a more of a harmony between these two mm-hmm. uh, sexual beings who, um, for whom there is, again, the sexual asymmetry because contraception really allows men to, um, you know, think that there are no consequences when yeah. there are very many, you know, there are consequences for women. They have to actually use the contraception. They have to put hormones in their body, which is, you know, the most, the, the type form of contraception most women use. And then sh- they have to worry that the contraception is not going to, not going to work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have to deal with the consequences, whether it's abortion or raising a child alone, if the, that man has walked away. So I think that that's kind of the full the full case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably have other things to say as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's great because um, you're you're exactly right too. I, I one thing I would say to my former former self that that saw contraception as just this um, complete benefit, like complete good for women, would be the fact that it's not foolproof, right? And so, um, so yeah, two things I would highlight in what you just said. One. I think the very act of, um, you know, taking birth control, for example, like decreases an awareness of one's own fertility, right? And that that influences the choices we make, the risks we take. Um, and I think there's a danger in distancing um, the unawareness of our own fertility, um, and that that can actually increase the chances of an unplanned pregnancy, right? So there's this there's almost this paradox, right? Like if I right. if I take a pill. Um, and then because I'm taking a pill, I, I presume myself to be sterile. Then there is almost this forgetting of the fact that I still have this capacity for fertility. Um, and then that might actually lead to me forgetting to take the pill. Right. Um, if that makes sense. And then of course, yeah, if I get pregnant then, or if the, if I forget to take the pill or if just the the method fails, then, um, who, you know, it's the woman who is then kind of left with the burden of pregnancy, um, whereas a man could walk away. So I think you're you're pointing out something that I think is really important that the sexual revolution has been really 
I don't want to say good for men because I actually don't think it's good for men in like the real sense of what goodness is. Um, but it's let men off the hook in a way. So it hasn't really liberated women. Um, but I think it's also made it easier in a way for men to take less responsibility for their own fertility. Um, so it sounds like one of the one of the distinctions you're making between, I guess, this this kind of virtue-centered feminism and the post-1970s feminism <clears throat> is that early feminists leaned into the connection between sex and procreation and thought, you know, argued for how do we live in harmony with that? How do we exercise our reason and develop self-restraint in a way that allows us to respond to this sexual asymmetry rather than how do we change our bodies to get rid of this sexual asymmetry, um, which ended up perhaps having these unintended or unfortunate consequences. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's the thing is that, as I said, kind of at the beginning that, that abortion, contraception abortion kind of papers over the asymmetry because it's, it's like an escape from it and yet it's not. Right. And so cultures were kind of built up around this understanding that men mm -hmm. and women had this sexual asymmetry. And so you had cultures of courtship, you had, uh, you know, all sorts of other ways in which women understood that they had this power to say no. Mm -hmm. And, and then it's all papered over. So like casual sex becomes like this kind of obvious thing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the cost of sex are reduced so much, at least for men. And so women kind of are at a loss. I mean, there's almost like, there's a cognitive dissonance for women that I'm supposed to be mm -hmm. kind of free. And yet, and so I kind of engage in what now with contraception abortion is kind of this right to sex, this right to sexual pleasure, just like a man does. But suddenly, you know, he just engages in the right to right to sex and right to pleasure, and that's it. Whereas I, as a woman, suddenly am struck pregnant. You know, mm -hmm. how did this happen? Mm -hmm. Like this wasn't supposed to happen. It didn't happen for him. And so there's this, and so that's where like there's this deep inequality. And so of course, you know, feminists today want to say, well, it's abortion that then gives women equality, but really that's not the case either because women then have to engage in this affirmative act of right. violence against their own child. Whereas a man doesn't even have to be involved in that at all. I mean, certainly it's his child as well, but he could, you know, not even know that it's happening. Right. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that that's where it's, it's a sad thing where women then, and also we've seen sort of this, this uptick where women, um, you know, you'd think feminism hadn't even happened where women are starting to, I think dress um, more and more, kind of sexualize them their, themselves more and more, so they have this kind of, you know, right to wherever, you know, wear whatever they want, and then a right to engage in sex and a right to have their abortion. And I think, um, I think that they're, you know, not like the alternative, which is this beautiful, you know, reciprocity, collaboration, harmony, love between men and women. When a man really understands and respects a woman in her entirety, fertility and all, is hardly presented as an alternative because people don't see it anywhere. I mean, walk on a college campus. Well, you're on a college campus. You're probably, <laughs> you have probably much more modestly dressed, you know, students than, <laughs> but, um, you know, my, my daughter just started um, at a Catholic college here on the East Coast. And during orientation, she was told with all the other freshmen that they had a right to sexual pleasure. And so it's like oh, trading this, you know, beautiful um, 
teachings about sexual ethics um, from kind of a Christian perspective, or I think a feminist perspective, um, in my view, uh, for this, you know, a right to sexual pleasure that is going to be good mainly for men, um, mm-hmm. especially at alcohol. And you wonder why there's any type, you know, sexual assault culture on campus. It's, right. it's, you know, the fact that people don't see this is astonishing to me. Yeah. And that's, that's an important point as well. Cause if there's one thing I think that has gotten just markedly worse since the second wave feminism, um, is the hypersexualization of women in our culture and kind of the pornification of our culture. Right. Um, and I can see that how this is downstream from some of the things that we're talking about. Um, so I want to, I, I do want to dig a little bit into the concept of virtue and what you mean by that, because it's a word that people use a lot, but I think sometimes, especially when we talk about like women's virtue, you know, it can sound a little bit like, Ooh, like, wait, tighten your corset, you know, <laughs> like, you know, let's, let's go back to this idea where, you know, women were these, um, these sort of like angels in the house and. Um, so what do you mean by virtue in this kind of robust philosophical sense? And then why do we need feminism to reconnect with that idea of virtue? Yeah. And so the best place to go, of course, is to Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, and she, I start with her in the book and kind of, um, you know, had read her early on mm-hmm. uh, as a women's studies student. But I think I read excerpts of her and yeah. so just read her the way most people do, which is, you know, she wanted co-equal education. She mm-hmm. wanted entry into the professions. Uh, she wanted kind of rights in marriage. And so we've attained all those things. So why should we care about Wilsoncraft anymore? And what's fascinating, if you read actually um, A Vindication of the Rights of Women in Full, you see that there's this really deep um, kind of moral and philosophical grounding to her understanding of all that. Um And so importantly, she's actually, so she's writing in the late 18th century. And so she is in conversation with all sort of different enlightenment figures, but most especially, I would say, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And so in Rousseau's Emile, um, he puts together this view of um, women. He has a chapter on Sophie. So Emile Mm -hmm. is his book on education. Um, And in the book, he wants to find a fitting um, uh, a woman for his Emile. And so he writes this whole chapter on Sophie and who is Sophie, but a woman of this feminine virtue that you're talking about. So she's, um, meek and submissive. She manipulates, which with her sexual power, Mm. (laughs) um, and, uh, and she is able to kind of govern man in some sense by her chastity. And so for Rousseau, like so many others, and sometimes this sneaks into Christianity, certainly within kind of the Victorian period, um, there's this understanding that yes, like women's virtue is their chastity mm-hmm. or their purity or their modesty. And so Wollstonecraft is going at that mm-hmm. straight on. And so, again, it's this logic of virtue that she uses as she says, you know, both men and women are rational creatures. And so, yes, they have different bodies, um, but that they're endowed with this ennobling capacity to reason. And Mm -hmm. I'll uh, quote her here because I think it's just beautiful. She says, to rise in excellence by the exercise of powers implanted for that purpose. And so what she wants Mm -hmm. to do is open up all of the virtues to women. She says, Mm -hmm. you're basically... Uh, you Rousseau and all the, you know, the culture that follows him is basically keeping uh, women, um, you know, kind of not just like trapped in the home. I mean, it's not really, mm-hmm. she sees the dom- domestic sphere as, as really um, 
uh, the seedbed of, of mm-hmm. the virtue that's important for development for children, for um, man and woman, but then also for the entire public sphere. So domesticity for her is a beautiful thing and really the kind of center of, of civilization, I, w- I guess I would say. But virtue is something that both men and women um, ought to, uh, um, uh, you know, work toward by fulfilling their duties um, because it is their end um, mm-hmm. to imitate God um, as uh, God's goodness and God's um, wisdom. And so she sees benevolence as like kind of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, thinking of others, um, living one's life um, uh, in order to serve others as the highest of virtues, but both for both men and women. Um, and so because they have the shared rational soul, they have this common purpose, which is develop um, wisdom and virtue. But because of their sex differences, um, they, you know, may kind of obtain or kind of um, manifest virtue in different ways, mm-hmm. right? Because of their different duties, you would say, like motherhood and fatherhood, of course, virtue is going to manifest in different ways. But that doesn't mean, you know, she talks about men and women may have different duties, but they ought to live um, or fulfill those duties with human principles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of open to all of us, which is virtue. So what are those virtues? You know, some mm-hmm. of them are, you know, sort of virtues like the classical virtues of justice, temperance, which we would call like self-mastery, self-discipline, which for mm-hmm. her was key because she understood mm-hmm. passions when they run wild can, you know, make uh, us into kind of just animals. Like we need to have self-mastery, self-discipline in order to really let reason govern govern our passions um, so that we can really be free. I mean, that's her understanding of freedom. Much, much different understanding um, from the moderns. Um, mm. But then also, of course, you know, patience, but then also chastity, modesty. She doesn't want to push away chastity, modesty. She just says men are responsible for chastity too. This is right. not just a woman's thing. In fact, she says, without knowing anything about testosterone at that point, just observing that men are far more libidinous, right? So they're more, um, you know, they have greater sort of libidos, which we know to be true because of testosterone. And so they actually have a greater call toward chastity to govern themselves, to Mm -hmm. govern their sexual appetites in order that they may um, really be free to love a woman um, for who she is as a person and not just, you know, for her sex appeal. So I would say that's um, her full kind of understanding of virtue is really, she would agree with the ancients that Mm -hmm. virtue is really, um, it's really kind of developed reason, you know, because to live in accordance with reason is to live in accordance with that highest part of us, um, which is that which imitates God um, in his, you know, wisdom. And so it's, she doesn't kind of use the participatory kind of language Mm -hmm. um, that like the medievals would, but it's very much kind of an imitation of God who is the singular um, standard for goodness and virtue. Um, and so that's who we should be imitating both men and women. Yeah, I think that, I think that's so profound. Um, and then that relates to the distinction you made earlier about different understandings of freedom, right? So if we're working in a framework where human beings have an end, um, toward which they can develop and for which they're made, that freedom looks like living toward that end, right? Rather than being free from it or being able to determine one's own end or being free from limits. Um, it's about living toward what we're made for and what we're, what our capacities, our natural capacities for reason and virtue and um, integrity. You use the word integrity in your book that I, I really like that. you. I think especially the phrase sexual integrity as 
Is it just a, another way of talking about chastity? But I, there's something about that phrase that I really like. Yeah. 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 Sometimes we have to, you know, we have to come up with new phrases yeah. and I, you know, I've heard other people use that too. It's not, I didn't coin it or anything, but because chastity does, it does mm-hmm. ring of that like Victorian yes. era, like just for women kind of thing. And so yeah. what is sexual integrity, but it's really integrating our passions, um, you know, with the, with, to be in accord with the, the higher part of us. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and for someone who, you know, came kind of came of age in, <laughs> Um, in 12 step programs, this is all like very, um, it was so obvious to me, like this kind of older teaching, older understanding of freedom, because for someone who dealt with addiction, like head on and has like temperance is still, um, though, you know, I haven't had a drink in like nearly 30 years or something. Temperance is still what I struggle with most because, well, what is it? It's knowing what I ought to do. (laughs) Um, and, and then, you know, having my passions like that, those fleeting kind of desires within me want to be the ruler of my reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, the modern understanding is like, we should let our, our passions kind of govern us and reason mm-hmm. then becomes kind of a rationalization. Uh, like Hume talks about how reason is the slave of the passions. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and, and that's like, and so freedom is really, so actually the best way to think about this, I think is with two images. Um, the ancient image comes from Plato's Phaedrus. And this is, Mm -hmm. I, in the book show sort of a parallel between this image and some language that Wollstonecraft uses too, with reason being the governor, but this great image of the charioteer, right? Where Mm -hmm. reason is the charioteer who governs the passions, um, kind of the spiritedness and, and the, the appetites, the lower kind of appetites, which are the horses. And so not with like a tyrannical rule Mm -hmm. where, you know, the passions are blotted out and are evil or something like that, but with what, what is called a political rule, which is the passions are good. They enliven us. Mm-hmm. They, you know, um, they, they inspire us, um, mm-hmm. to get up in the morning, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to do, to do good. I mean, they're, they, they, you know, the passions are, um, you know, uh, those things which direct us to the good in lots of ways, but we need reason to mm-hmm. govern them or else they kind of, you know, run astray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the great other images with the moderns is, um, that in, in kind of a modern understanding, um, because they don't believe in sort of this idea of freedom as coming through self-discipline, that the, that the horses, which are the passions, are kind of set free. And then hmm. we erect fences around the passions through kind of laws. And so what happens hmm. when a person is less and less, less disciplined, less and less capable of mastering their passions, which comes through habits. I mean, that was very mm-hmm. clear from Aristotle. Right. It's very clear in Wollstonecraft that habits um, through doing our duties every day, you know, through just looking at what's our concrete duty today and then doing that duty through governing ourselves around food, drink, sex, and all that, that those passions grow. What happens when we don't take seriously that need for habituation of virtue? Well, our passions rear their heads more and more and more. And so what do we need is to erect higher and higher fences, you know, around Mm. our passions. And that's not real freedom either. I mean, that's where tyrannical governments come about. And so, you know, the, 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 the the government or the, or the, the, the polity that's, you know, um, uh, encompassed by self-governing human beings doesn't need to be governed by kind of the strong arm of the state, right? because those human beings are governing themselves. It's very much an understanding of, um, of uh, self-discipline and virtue that our, our own country's founders had. 
um, that we really need kind of personal self-government in order to attain a Republican self-government. Um, and it was a risk uh, the founders were willing to take. And it was an experiment, as we say, in ordered liberty, um, which right now is uh, in deep question, I would say, because we right. don't take seriously the self-mastery that starts mm. very much in the home. Right. Okay. Well, that's a perfect segue to your last chapter, which I'm, I wanted to talk about next, which is amazing. So um, your 10th chapter in the book, um, hold on, I'm flipping, flipping to it. Yeah. So it's entitled Reimagining Feminism Today in Search of Human Excellence. And you talk here about um, what authentic reproductive justice would look like. And you really get into some concrete uh, policies that could help bring about a different kind of condition for women women and men in society. So I would love to to get into some of the nitty-gritty details here. Like what would it look like um, to, I think at one point the phrase you use is to prioritize the family cause over the social cause or the family, is that, is that am I getting that yeah, right? So okay. that's, yeah, that's Jane Adams, Nobel laureate oh, Jane Adams, okay. who, um, yeah, said that we need to prioritize the family claim over the social claim. claim. And I'm glad you bring that up because that's kind of the key, I think, to unlocking like the whole of the book is that there's an mm -hmm. understanding that starts with Mary Wollstonecraft that the family, and and I say starts with Mary Wollstonecraft and ends with Mary Ann Glendon, who is my mm -hmm. great teacher, who for your listeners who don't know her, mm -hmm. um, she is now pr professor emeritus at Harvard Law School um, and one of the leading kind of thinkers of what was called the communitarian movement in the 1990s, um, hmm. in which was kind of a critique of uh, individualism and kind of autonomy as being the prevailing or the governing or hegemonic um, mm -hmm. kind of value in constitutional law, but really in our society, as though we could all, you know, walk around as autonomous individuals. I mean, it's kind of an absurdity, right? We're all deeply connected and deeply mm -hmm. um, obligated to one another. Um, and so for Wilsoncraft, and then uh, all the way through many, many, many of the women that I talk about in the book, I mean, especially through like industrialization, I mean, this was a very important theme is that the family is the place where men and women engage um, in the work of uh, inculcating virtue, both in their children and themselves. And these virtues are necessary for every other economic, social, um, and political good. And so really the book starts um, with the, in an agrarian setting, because that's mm -hmm. where Wollstonecraft and then the founding of our country happened. And so I tell kind of the story, and I'm going to get to your question about the last chapter, of course, but to set, to set, you know, mm -hmm. set it up, um, really um, tell the story about how the agrarian homestead really had this beautiful collaboration between men and women. Yes, women did not have the kind of political rights mm -hmm. um, that men had, but there was this deep interdependence um, uh, between men and women at that time because they were like self-subsisting uh, mm -hmm. farmers in many right. ways, or they had their own shops. And, and, and the, the home was this great giant sphere. And so if you said that women were kind of, you know, the governesses of the home, well, good. And they were doing all sorts of work in that sphere. Um, they had great, if you want to say, I mean, the family had an autonomy about it mm -hmm. and the women had great agency in that, in that sphere. And so with industrialization, you know, men are kind of become wage earners and there's this vulnerability that suddenly comes from women. There's still a great interdependence. Mm -hmm. I mean, women, men are bringing in the wages and women are the ones who, you know, are still doing much of the work um, 
um, of the home, but with industrialization comes a vulnerability. And then women, poor women especially, are sent out into the workplace. And so this is when Jane Addams, um, she's founded what's called Hull House, and mm. she and Florence Kelly and others are working to, to ensure that the workplace is a place where women are not entirely exploited. Men were already being mm. exploited. They cared about that too. But women who had responsibility for children were then made to work crazy hours. Um, and then there was, there was you know, what were, what were the children supposed to do? They were really left abandoned during the day, et cetera. Um, so, of course, quickly moving through, then you have uh, the feminist response to really industrialization, which comes around the same time, mm-hmm. um, for women to have, you know, better workplace uh, situation. But then as we get further on, um, you know, anti-discrimination law, all of that. We're now at a place, I think, where because of, well, you could say all sorts of reasons, globalization, um, uh, um, you know, sort of um, the capitalist market really becoming kind of a central uh, feature of everyone's lives, um, great deal of consumerism mm-hmm. um, that and the entry of women um, with men um, into the workplace um, where women, you know, want to be engaged in work because um, they have a lot of freedom from kind of the drudgery, the parts of drudgery of the home, you know, sort of all sorts of time saving appliances to be able to engage in other things. Um, mm-hmm. And so what do we do about that now? You know, and so I think that there are all sorts of um kind of policies where we could turn back to kind of what happened to, to, to sort of see today as like another agrarian uh, time, right? Where technology has allowed a lot of us to work in the home, certainly not all of us, certainly not, you know, poor workers, um, but where we could try to facilitate more harmonization between work and home life, just like we had um, in an agrarian setting. And that's really prioritizing the work mm-hmm. of the family over kind of the capitalist market. In today's feminism, equality is kind of seen as like a market equality where everybody has to be a breadwinner. We all have to earn the same amount. And what's left with the children, you know, and there's lots of, you know, people in um, rising generations, which see that they want to, um, you know, men and women want to really engage in the life of the home, that cooperative work and raising their children because they see it as really their most important work. So that gets mm-hmm. to kind of your question yeah. of what do we do about all this? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think, you know, it's really kind of reducing that market pressure on families to send both people into the workplace. You know, how is mm-hmm. this an advance, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, in terms of our economy that um, working class people especially need both people to go out to work? And so they're required to send their children um, to daycare. And so that's how we see, you know, let's just, you know, help families by having more and more and more daycare. Well, that's not what people want, especially poor families, working class families don't want daycare. And so what are the kinds of, um, or don't want full-time daycare anyway, they mm-hmm. want to spend time with their, with their children. Uh, so let me get a word in edgewise, but the real principle, or let, let me let you get a word in edgewise. <laughs> um, but the real principle there is, um, really reducing those market pressures, not discriminating against those, families who want to care for their own family, their own children in their own home. And so making that a priority because the family and the work of the family is foundational to every other, again, economic, social, political uh, work that is, that is possible. Yeah. I, when I, when I was listening to you talk, one person who springs to mind is Wendell Berry, who's made some of the same critiques about how um, the, the economy of the home, which used to be so this, it's kind of the center of gravity for both men and women, 
um, has really now that now the home is is a consumer rather than a producer. But right. I've never thought about how technology might be a way of having this new agrarianism where the work um, is it brings open the possibility of maybe centering one's life in the home in a new way. Um, that's that's actually really encouraging because when I read Wendell Berry, I just kind of get depressed because I'm like, yeah, well, we can't all buy a farm and live in Kentucky, you know? Like, what do we do? Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah. what what kind of specific policies do you think, like, in terms of? Um, and you talk about quite a number of things, but in terms of opening possibilities of more flexible work or port part-time work. One of the interesting things you point out, because um, something feminists often talk about is the wage gap between men and women. Um, and you really drill down on that and say it's not really just about men versus women, that the wage gap is really about mothers and non-mothers, that it's it's mothers who really end up kind of suffering um, or, you know, not having the benefits of of wages or they they lose in the marketplace when they take off time or um, it's much harder than to to keep up with a career if you take any time off to care for children. So what are some specific policies that you think um, we could, you know, that, that feminists, these dignitarian feminists um, that you're, you're trying to, um, to create should advocate for? Yeah, I think flexibility is a really important one. So, you know, the knowledge class, those who are writing all the books, they have generally great flexibility. Look mm -hmm. at you and I, we're here <laughs> engaging in a podcast. Obviously, this is our work. But at the same time, um, there's a kind of flexibility and be able mm -hmm. to determine when we when we want to meet. Um, when, uh, when I work, I have tons of flexibility in my work. Um, obviously, professors have lots of flexibility. They have to be at their classes. They have to be, you know. But so I think those knowledge workers um, tend to mm -hmm. enjoy this kind of flexibility that, you know, the just-in-time scheduling class where literally um, our, you know, low-class or um, underclass and working-class um, the kind of uh, schedules are literally put on like just the week before. And so mm -hmm. they have no flexibility and to try to find someone to take their shift, it makes rearing children and engaging in, in the market nearly impossible. So I think things like really practical things like making sure, I mean, and this can be, these can be laws that require mm -hmm. um, those kind of companies um, to make sure that, you know, work is put out, schedules are put out well in advance. Um, other types of flexibility in terms of part-time work. I talk about part-time paid pay equity, mm -hmm. which I think is a really important point. I mean, there's this kind of like, you know, the more you work, the greater you're revered in the workplace because, you know, mm -hmm. your boss is like your fan, you know, your, your workplace is like your family. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you put all this face time in and therefore you're the one who get all the promotion because, you know, and, and obviously there is certain work, um, that requires a single person to have all sorts of knowledge in their head, like say a lawyer um, who has to be there in order to, to deal with their client and all that. Um, but there's some work that very much, um, and law is certainly one of one of the um, industries which where part-time work can, um, that you can engage it very fruitfully and that um, employers can find work for part-time workers um, <clears throat> that can be very, very helpful, beneficial, um, uh, you know, in, to the, to the employer. And so what is pay equity? It's just saying that they should make, you know, they shouldn't make disproportionately less. They should right. make 
you know, the, the salary according to mm-hmm. how much work they're putting in. So I think that that's a, a really important, important one. Um, and then of course, things like family leave, yeah. maternity leave. I was going to ask leave. about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, you know, I think family leave um, does have a great benefit over something just like maternity leave. Um, I do think that, you know, fathers are much less likely to take leave, but that, you know, lots of studies show that it really benefits women when they first have a child to have the father home and that there should be kind of an expectation that that would happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly not probably at the the lengths that women need um, time off. Um, and then also I think importantly, I mean, all those things kind of help women engage, help women and men kind of engage back in the market quickly. But I think, um, there needs to be an understanding again, that the family claim is first. And so I think there, you know, and we've already seen this now, um, all sorts of debates over like a family allowance, um, Mm-hmm. increase in child, right. um, child subsidies, not child care subsidies, but child subsidies right. with, um, Romney and all sorts of other people on the mm-hmm. right have come to, um, to make proposals, but Biden's is the first to get out the door, right? Obviously some of us are receiving, uh, checks now for, mm-hmm. um, for our care of children. I think there's a lot of benefit to that, for that, uh, to that. It also has this, you know, some people are complaining, rightly so that they're, it's hard to find workers right now because, um, you know, people are getting paid (laughs) to be home. Um, and I think, you know, what does that mean that maybe wages need to go up? You know, people need to, um, especially these big companies need to be paying, um, greater wages, um, closer to like a family wage. And that's hard for small businesses. Maybe they're exempt, but these big companies that have Mm -hmm. giant margins, um, should really be taking seriously, um, their responsibilities to those who, you know, well, to all of their, their employees, but certainly those who have families would benefit, would benefit most. But the government then, um, gets involved because employers can't kind of differentiate between, well, you know, this one's a father, this one's a mother, this one is childless, but the government can, because the government can see that that work, you know, Mm -hmm. we shouldn't, those who engage in, in, in the work of the home, uh, you know, and uh, should not be penalized economically by doing right. this work that, as Marianne Glendon, you know, reminds us so much, and I talk about in the book, is um, really work for all of us. Yeah. Um, and so there's a way in which it's okay to put the scale, put the thumb on the scales in ben- to benefit families, I think. And how you go about doing that, whether they're things like work requirements or whether, you know, there's uh, per child, et cetera, that's really for the policy wonks to yeah. deal with. I kind of <laughs> put out, um, put out real just principles, um, mm-hmm. and not, and not sort of the, the detailed policies, which I think someone with different skill set uh, needs to, needs to look at instead of me. Yeah. Um, so what's, uh, what's next for you? What are you working on now? I'm curious about what the Wollstonecraft project is. Um, Yes, thank you. Well, um, the Wollstonecraft Project, obviously inspired um, by a lot of the research in the book, um, is doing a bunch of different things. So we're at the Abigail Adams Institute Mm -hmm. um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We serve um, the Harvard kind of intellectual community and other many different colleges there with kind of a supplementary humanistic um, uh, program. So we offer all sorts of kind of classes, lectures um, for Harvard students who don't have our um, our worldview <laughs> can come and come and enjoy it uh, because they're they're not getting it from their own professors. Hmm. So um, one of the key components of the Wilson Craft Project is the class that that Angela Franks, mm-hmm. um, uh, who's a theologian, uh, metaphysician, and I teach um, in the summer. It's an intensive summer seminar called Man, Woman, Body, Soul in the Western Tradition. Yes. It's outstanding. Yes. It's a great class. Um, it's really for 
um, upper college students and graduate students, mm-hmm. but we have had young professionals come too. And thankfully, because of a grant, we are going to be able to um, house those students at Harvard this summer. So it's a lot less of a cost than it has been for our students who have had to find their own housing in Cambridge, which is very, very difficult. So we're really excited about that. Um, and then we also have lectures throughout the year. We're really trying to build kind of like a women's studies, gender studies program, mm-hmm. but with kind of a Wollstonecraftian orientation, which is, as we say, a realist metaphysics, which basically yes. understands that there there is reality, <laughs> objective reality, that men and women um, uh, are, you know, uh, uh, both distinct, but also particular beings, you know, that mm-hmm. they're not just kind of conjures of their, right. um, you know, this kind of gender ideology that you spend so much time on. Um and then an understanding um, of virtue ethics and then an understanding of rights built on responsibilities, which was which was Wollstonecraft's understanding. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're having you out in the spring. We're so <laughs> yeah. happy about that. Um, we have Tim Fortin, who's um, done some work in kind of reappropriating Aristotelian understandings of metaphysics to better understand um, our differences as men and as male mm-hmm. and female. So we're having him out actually in a couple of weeks. Um, and so we're trying to build this up. Yeah. Over time, um, I guess the the second portion of it is that we give out money. Uh, this year, we've given out an academic fellowship of twenty thousand um, dollars to scholars who really have um, have spent much of their time in the work of the home um, and mm-hmm. are either trying to come back or are working part time at this point. No one really does anything like this in terms of an academic That's fellowship, um, and so it's really exciting. So this year, we have two women who both have PhDs in literature who are uh-huh. gathering all sorts of other women, I think 15 or 12 to 15 yeah. other um, women who also have PhDs in literature, uh, as you do, <laughs> um, or literary criticism to um, write a collection of these essays about how literature, how classic literature has informed their motherhood and how motherhood has informed their reading of classical literature. Mm. So really, really excited about that. Um and then we also are going to be um, working with another institute um, soon to launch a journal, which I'll be telling you more about privately, oh, Abigail, wonderful. because we'll want you to be involved on yeah. kind of these kinds of questions, sex, gender, mm-hmm. family, um, and then kind of sex exploitation, mm-hmm. prostitution, pornography from more of a, what I would call a sex realist position. Mm-hmm. So really excited about um, about that coming as well. Oh, fantastic. I'm I'm so excited about the work you're doing. And again, I cannot recommend this book enough, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision by Erica Bakiaki. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Um, I really look forward to seeing what's next for you. Thank you, Abigail. Mm-hmm. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. <laughs>